Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to a history of Europe. Kibatos. The Background to the Hundred Years' War, Part 2 of 2. In the previous podcast, I described the political situation in France and England prior to the outbreak of the Hundred Years' War. For generations, the two kingdoms had been in conflict, with the Duchy of Aquitaine in southwestern France as the main bone of contention. Aquitaine had belonged to the English crown ever since the marriage of King Henry II of England and Eleanor of Aquitaine in 1152, which meant that the King of England was technically, in his capacity of Duke, a vassal of the King of France. The French crown periodically exploited the situation to undermine the English position. In January 1324, King Charles IV of France summoned Edward II of England to answer charges against his officials. The pretext given was an attack by the Seneschal of Gascony against a provocatively built fortification in San Sado. When Edward declined to appear, Charles declared Aquitaine confiscate and sent troops into the region. Charles' sister, Isabella, who was married to King Edward II of England, travelled to France to negotiate a peace. Isabella was joined by her son, the young Prince Edward, later that year, who paid homage to Charles on his father's behalf as a peace gesture. Despite this, Charles refused to return the lands in Aquitaine to the English king, resulting in a provisional agreement under which Edward resumed administration of the remaining English territories in early 1326, whilst France continued to occupy the rest. While in France, Isabella conspired with her lover, Roger Martimer, the Earl of March, to have her husband deposed. An invasion of England was launched and Edward II's forces deserted him completely. The king was forced to relinquish the throne to his son on the 25th of January 1327 and was murdered in September of the same year. The new king was crowned as Edward III on the 1st of February 1327, but as a minor of 14 years of age, the de facto ruler of England was Roger Mortimer. The most immediate issue to address was the conflict of Scotland, as bands of Scots were crossing into northern England to burn and plunder as they pleased. The lack of clear legitimacy of Mortimer and Isabella meant that they were kept very busy trying to consolidate their position and so unable to muster sufficient resources to wage a war on the north. In 1238, they settled with the Scots for a paltry £20,000, giving up England's claim to overlordship and recognising Scotland as a sovereign kingdom. This made them unpopular among the English nobles, a feeling intensified by an equally weak response to the French, who threatened the disputed borders of Aquitaine. 
In February of the same year, 1328, the King of France, Charles IV, died unexpectedly. Now all three sons of Philip IV had passed away without leaving a male heir. Up until this time, the Capetians had been remarkably fortunate in achieving an unbroken line of male heirs since the time of Hugh Capet in the 10th century. But their luck had finally run out. The man nearest in blood to the last three kings as their nephew was the young King Edward III. The French, however, had no intention of inviting the English king to rule them, and chose Charles's cousin, Philip of Valois, who became Philip VI. The House of Valois would go on to rule France for the next two and a half centuries. The legal justification given for not electing Edward was that their laws of succession, called the Salic Laws, prevented transmission of claims to the female line, i.e. through Isabella. Even the pro-French historian George Duby writes that this went contrary to all contemporary succession practices amongst in the Medici. And Anne Curry, in her history of the Hundred Years' War, believes the idea that Salic law prevents women transmitting claims was invented decades later as a retrospective justification for Valois' tenure of the throne. Anyhow, Philip seemed the natural choice among the French nobles at the time, and the English were in such a weak position themselves, due to Edward II's deposition and with a minor on the throne, that they made no attempt to assert Edward's right to the French throne. A more astute English leadership at this point would have attempted to turn the situation to England's advantage and used Edward's dynastic claim as a bargaining lever for greater security in what remained of English territories on the continent. Instead, it was Philip VI who exploited English weakness. He demanded Edward pay him homage, threatening to sequestrate his revenues from the duchy if he did not. King Philip II of France was an experienced soldier, having campaigned in Italy in 1320 and in Aquitaine in 1324. Early in his reign, he won an important battle against the Flemish, who were resisting his claim to be their overlord, at Cassel in 1328. Unlike Edward, he had never expected to be a king. He was born some way down the line of succession, simply as heir to the county of Valois, no more than the eldest of a string of distant relatives to the king. Furthermore, he had been until recently largely overshadowed by his father, who died in 1324. He therefore did not have the benefit of a personal entourage of the like of Edward's and since he owed his accession to the throne to the other nobles, he was somewhat restricted in his ability to impose his will. On the other hand, he had at his disposal the well-organised administration of the French crown. In 1330, Edward III eventually decided to take action against Mortimer, Aided by his close companion, William Montagu, and a small number of other trusted men, Edward took Mortimer by surprise at Nottingham Castle on the 19th of October. Mortimer was accused of the murder of Edward II and of the usurpation of a royal power. Edward III had him executed, but was more lenient to his mother, who he simply removed from power and sent off to Norfolk. And so began the new king's personal reign. King Edward III was a vigorous, athletic and charismatic young man, able to form close friendships with his men. He was well-educated and highly literate, and fascinated by the great heroes of history and mythology. 
He consciously studied the lives of kings in the hope it would imbue his own reign with their best qualities, while avoiding their failures. While his father had regularly been in conflict with a great portion of his peerage, the new king successfully created a spirit of camaraderie between himself and the leading nobles. In the previous two generations there had been a general decline in the state of aristocracy. Edward III reversed this trend, starting with the appointment of six new earls in March 1337. First among them was William Montague, leader of the 1330 coup which had deposed Mortimer, who was now rewarded with the title of the Earl of Salisbury. Edward also gave a title to his six-year-old son, also named Edward, who would later be known as the Black Prince. It was under Edward's reign that jousting became a popular pastime among the nobility. Whereas previous kings were wary of large numbers of knights congregating, Edward actively encouraged tournaments, and so they soon became major social occasions for the English court. As tournaments moved away from mass encounters to the joust between two participants, so the length of the proceedings increased. This in turn increased their potential as opportunities, not only for the display of horsemanship and knightly skills, but also for opulent costumes and lavish entertainment. Edward excelled in this. He imported the finest gold cloth from the Far East, and his robes were decorated with exotic animals such as leopards, tigers, pelicans and falcons. He kept a menagerie which included lions, leopards, a bear and various apes and monkeys. He loved music, and as his court travelled, it rang with minstrels singing, drums and lutes. Such displays helped to create a grand vision of royal power, but their purpose went beyond simple enjoyment and indulgence. The king required military supporters with resources and an obligation to the crown to fight. In the spring of 1333, Edward began a campaign in Scotland and met the Scots in battle at Hallidon Hill, two miles away from Berwick. The tactics practised there would serve Edward well during the course of his reign. Edward took up a strong defensive position on a hill, with three divisions of dismounted men-at-arms, each flanked by mounted archers. There would be no repeat of the cavalry charges that failed so fatally at the Battle of Bannockburn in 1314. Instead, as the Scottish spearmen advanced up the hill, the English let loose a hail of arrows upon them, causing terror and panic. The Scottish advance was scattered before they even reached the enemy. By the time hand-to-hand combat was joined, the Scots were tired and disheartened. Although perhaps double the size of the English army, they were soon routed. In the ensuing carnage, some of the finest Scottish nobles and knights had fallen, including six earls. Edward's victory at Hallidon Hill allowed him to put his ally, Edward Balliol, back on the throne, reclaim Berwick, and lay claim to large tracts of territory in the Scottish lowlands. Despite such a convincing victory, the Scots continued to put up stiff resistance during the next three years. Edward rampaged around the Scottish countryside, burning and looting and killing, in an attempt to demoralise enemy civilians, a strategy which was soon to be exported to the continent. The Scots, though, refused to submit, in large part due to the support received from the King of France. Philip VI of France had taken the deposed King David II of Scotland and given him sanctuary in the great fortress of Chateau Gaillard. 
The situation in Scotland was in many ways mirrored in French problems with the county of Flanders, where the native population were likewise extremely hostile to outside influence. Philip IV had used any opportunity available to try to subject this rich domain to his control. As in Aquitaine and elsewhere in France, the Counts of Flanders were vassals to the French king. There were several reasons for the commencement of the Anglo-French hostilities in 1337, when the Hundred Years' War began. The underlying problems of Aquitaine remained, as did the irritation of the English by the support given to Scotland by the French. On top of those factors were two events that triggered the conflict. Firstly, in 1336, Pope Benedict XII postponed a planned crusade to the Holy Land. While Philip of France seems to have been genuinely committed to the crusade, Edward was lukewarm and never symbolically took the cross. Edward argued that his participation in a joint crusade was dependent upon an agreement being reached over Aquitaine and on his being given a free hand in Scotland. Although a peace agreement between the rival kingdoms might seem a reasonable condition, Philip was still able to portray the English king as being unreasonably obstructive in the crusading cause. With no immediate prospect of a crusade, there was less incentive to find the peace, and in the winter of 1336, both Edward and Philip stepped up their scramble for allies for the forthcoming confrontation. The final spark that lit the fire was Robert of Artois. Robert was Philip's cousin and brother-in-law, and had enjoyed the French king's favour at the outset of his reign. But relations soured when his aunt's inheritance to the county was preferred to his own, when his recourse to forgery in pursuit of his inheritance was uncovered. Accused of his aunt's murder, he was condemned to death by Philip in 1332, but escaped to England. On the 24th of May, 1337, Philip declared the confiscation of Aquitaine on the grounds that his vassal Edward was harbouring Robert, despite a summons that he should surrender him to French justice. Growing tensions had meant that war had been virtually inevitable. Now it was certain. On the 16th of July, 1338, King Edward III of England sailed from the coast of Essex to Antwerp. He then travelled to Koblenz, where in a lavish ceremony in September he met the Holy Roman Emperor Louis of Bavaria. Louis, whose anti-French and anti-papal stance was reinforced by a hefty English bribe, appointed Edward as overlord of all the Emperor's fiefs west of the Rhine. It was too late for campaigning that year, but Edward settled in Antwerp for the winter and organised his allies to gather north of Brussels in July of the following year. However, it was not until September that Edward's army was ready to move, and even then not all the promised participants had turned up. The campaign was expensive and achieved nothing. Edward failed to bring Philip and the French army to battle and ended the campaigning season angry, frustrating and increasingly in debt. His priorities were to raise enough money to be able to continue the war into the next year and to persuade Flanders to stand by him. On the 26th of January, 1340, King Edward revealed a change of tactics. In a lavish ceremony and before a large crowd in the marketplace of Ghent, he made a game-changing announcement. He demanded recognition of himself as the rightful King of France and took homage from various Flemings, including Guy of Flanders, half-brother of the Count. Edward reassured all those before him that he would respect their liberties and mercantile rights, too often trampled over by the Capetians and now the Valois. 
Then he gave the day over to his famous celebrations, a jousting contest. Until this day, Edward had been reluctant to go very far on his claim to the French throne. Perhaps he was deterred by deference to papal peace initiatives, maybe a lack of enthusiasm for the claim in England and Gascony, uncertainties over his allies or a lack of confidence that his claim could be made effective in France. The last two years had achieved nothing in spite of great expenditure. Without the active support of Flanders, his campaign was unlikely ever to be successful, but he could only meet Flemish demands by declaring himself King of France. Even though the Flemish nobility were split and some immediately defected to Philip, Edward was now accepted for the first time as King in part of France. On the 8th of February, he issued a declaration justifying his actions and inviting the people of France to submit to him. Edward was now speaking for the first time as the King of France rather than a rebellious ducal vassal, portraying the war as no longer for Aquitaine but for the French throne. Thank you for listening. Feel free to get in touch either on the Facebook page for A History of Europe, Key Battles podcast, on the blog site, which is www.historyeurope.net, Twitter at at historyeurope.kb, or write to me directly. Email address is carl at historyeurope.net. I look forward to speaking again in two weeks' time for the start of the Hundred Years' War. The first battle will be the Battle of Slaus of 1340. Until then, have a great time and goodbye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.